The sacramental life of the church communicates the life of Christ to us. Hey everyone, this is Gomer from EKSB, Every Knee Shall Bow, your weekly Catholic podcast on evangelization and discipleship. I wanted to record a bonus episode for all you super fans out there. I had just finished an episode with Dave Van Vickle about baptism and typology in the Old Testament, and I wanted to explain a little bit more and go down some fun typological readings of baptism in the Bible. Now, what is typology? Typology comes from the Greek word tupos meaning type. It's actually where we get the English word type. And it means something like prefiguring, foreshadowing, pattern. These are different translations that the English New Testament uses of the Greek word tupos in its various forms. And so what it basically means is in the Old Testament, there are types and shadows of the good things to come, right? That the law contains shadows of which the New Testament, and in particular Jesus, is the reality, the substantial form. And these shadows are meant to be not a denigration of the Old Testament. We can't think of it as, oh, shadow, something ethereal, and the New Testament, something solid. What we mean by this is they are anticipations and preparations for the fullness of revelation in the gospel. Now, my favorite thing to talk about when it comes to typology is the notion of baptism in the Eucharist. Both of those are flooded in the Old Testament, pun intended, flooded throughout the Old Testament with these things. Why do I think typologically about baptism, about the Eucharist, and about Christ's sacrifice on the cross, and about Jesus, you know, all these things. Well, in in one sense, you can say that typology ennobled the Israelites in their walk with Yahweh. So what do we mean? That God progressed in his revelation of himself and in the vocation of Israel through these types and in the different covenants. So you have something like Moses, who's the head over all of Israel and all this stuff. Then you get someone like David, who's a king, right? And you have these things where God is using the context and the lives of the people in order to show forth and communicate his divine plan and his power. As St. Paul says in Colossians, the mystery hidden for ages in Christ Jesus. So what God did was he used Israel to catechize the world. And the way I like to think of it as, a prism. You know, when you have a beam of white light and it strikes a prism, this, you know, pyramid-shaped glass, the pyramid-shaped glass divides the light into its constituent colors, right? Red, orange, yellow, blue, green, indigo, violet, Roy G. Biv, all that good stuff. Well, the Old Testament, in a very real way, is like those different colors. God uses many types and shadows or anticipations in order to explain and point to the mystery that is Christ, and especially the Paschal mystery, his death and resurrection, glorious ascension into heaven. So you look at, for instance, if you go in the book of Leviticus and you read through Leviticus chapter 1 to chapter 7, I think it is, doing this off the top of my head, uh, chapter 7, you will find all the different types of sacrifices. There's a guilt offering, the sin offering, the peace offering, there's the daily offering, there's cereal offerings, it's super fascinating when you start going through this that you can understand more and more the sacrificial system around the tabernacle, which is the mobile temple in the wilderness, and then the temple that takes over for it in Jerusalem. And Jesus is in front of the second temple. The first temple was destroyed in Babylon 
in like 580 something. And then they rebuilt it 70 years later under Ezra and Nehemiah. And then Jesus was a part of Second Temple Judaism, which is then destroyed in 70 AD by the Romans. So this understanding of the temple was the center point of their life. Well, so the sacrificial system is the center point of their life. So that means if Jesus claims that he is the new temple, that his body is the new temple, that it's literally the presence of God on earth and it mediates the presence of God on earth, what does the sacrificial system within Christ Jesus look like? And the whole book of Hebrews is dedicated to this understanding of especially Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, the Jewish Feast of the Atonement, as it applies to Jesus Christ crucified, right? So when we look at the Old Testament, it is not something that can be carelessly treated or tossed to the side now that we have the new. Too many people think that way. That's actually a heresy, a Gnostic heresy called Marcionism. And Marcionism uh, is, there was a priest named Marcius who just basically believed um, Marcion, Marcion, that we should just throw out the Old Testament because that's the God of nature and the body and physical. And he wanted to keep just a handful of books from the New Testament. The Old Testament God is evil. The New Testament God is good. There's elements of that woven in with ignorant Christians. What we need to see is the progressive revelation of God after the fall to his people Israel. And Jesus is the fullness of that revelation. Jesus is the final and definitive word of the Father spoken to Israel. And Jesus is also in his humanity the one who perfectly lives out Israel's vocation to the Father or to God or to Yahweh. So Jesus is both. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, St. Paul gives us one of the, our, our instructions on typology where he says that these things happened to them, meaning the Old Testament Israelites in the desert, but they were written down for our instruction. So he says some of them, you know, behaved immorally, and this is what happened to them, so don't you do that. Some of them were idolaters, and this is how they were punished, so don't you do that, right? So he goes through, typology is meant to be the bridge of the union between the old and the new. Now, I am writing a book, and this is what I said uh, in the show. I'm writing a book on apologetics. It's a simple book. It's written principally for prisoners. will eventually become something for RCIA people. Isn't that the same thing? But the idea is we use typology to understand the Catholic Church. When people say, where is that in the Bible? Our Catholic answer is it's in the union of the old and the new. How you apply the old and the new in that union is where sacred tradition leads us and guides us. So let me just do a quick example. And this is me more or less just off the top of my head right now, going through a typological reading of the Old Testament in order to understand what baptism is. So we know that baptism washes away original sin and restores us to holiness and justice before God. We also know that it is our adoption into Christ, and thus we truly become sons and daughters in Jesus of the Father. And also, you know, you got the indelible mark, you have sanctifying grace, you have the spirit of adoption, you also have what we call a newness of life, or we are a new creation. So just by saying a new creation, we look at the old creation and the typology there. So look in Genesis chapter one. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. I'm doing this from memory, so your translation and uh, your mileage may vary. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Okay, God created it. And then God said, and then there was, uh, okay, so I'm already butchering. God created the heavens and the earth. And the earth was formless and void. So formlessness and void are the problems that days one, two, and three for form and days four, five, and six for the void, the emptiness. God gives the solutions, right? So the forms are day one, two, and three. 
and he fills the emptiness or the void on days four, five, and six. Okay, so the earth was formless and void, and darkness covered the face of the deep, the deep meaning the deep waters, and the spirit of God or the breath of God or a mighty wind, because ruah in Hebrew means breath, wind, and spirit, for the ruah hovered over the midst of the waters or blew mightily over the midst of the waters or over the waters. Now, this is important for us because when we look at Jesus being baptized, if we see that our faith in Jesus makes us a new creation, we look at the old creation, we have these six days on the seventh, he rests, you understand the Sabbath, the blessing, it is good, it is good, it is good, behold, it is very good. You have all this beautiful stuff, image and likeness in the creation of man, male and female. What do we have at the very beginning? We have the spirit of God hovering over the waters of creation. Well, what do we have in the new creation? We have the Holy Spirit in the form of a dove hovering over the waters of the Jordan River as Christ comes up out of the waters. In Genesis chapter one, we have God creating the heavens and the earth. In John's gospel, in in Matthew, Mark, Luke, when we have the baptism narratives, we have the voice of the Father being spoken over Christ in the midst of the waters. Amazing. This is my son, right? So then in Genesis chapter one, how does God create? Well, you go to day one. And then God said, let there be light, and there was light. God creates by the power of his word. So right now we have God, we have God's spirit, and we have God's word. When you go to the baptism narrative, what do we have? We have God the Father speaking, we have God the Son receiving, and we have God the Holy Spirit hovering over the waters. So this is to show us that baptism is not just something, some ritual, some mystery rites that Catholicism snagged from Babylonian mystery cult religions or something like that or something that the Romans did and, and blah, blah, blah. No, this is something that is deeply, transformatively biblical, that when you have been baptized into Christ, you are now a new creation. This is important for Paul's theology of baptism. In Romans chapter 5, verses 12 and following, he talks about contrasting Adam, and this is actually where we get the main word for type, tupos. It says that Adam was a type of the one who was to come. How was he a type? Well, in Adam, he was our covenant representative before God. So we look at Jesus, the new Adam, or the second Adam, or the last Adam, all of those descriptors apply, the second, the new, or the last, and he is our covenant representative before God, just as in Adam all sinned, now in Christ all are made alive. And then St. Paul, see, we kind of read chapter 5, verses 12 and following, and we get to the end of that chapter and we stop reading because that begins chapter 6. But we realize that Paul didn't have chapters, and so his thought of how the death and resurrection of Jesus saves us and we get into Christ, he then explains how to get into Christ actually, how, how we actually do that, how it actually saves us. And he says, do you not know that those of you who are baptized into Christ were baptized into his death, right? So if all the things in chapter five, verses 12 and following about his death is what brings us salvation and forgiveness, baptism baptizes us, puts us into the death of Christ. And then baptism puts us into the resurrection of Christ. If you've been baptized with him, then do you not know you will be raised like him from the dead? Right, So our newness of life, which he says in Romans chapter 8, that we walk with Christ in newness of life, that we are a new creation, this is because of baptism. Well, it's not just because of baptism, like it's some ritual, that would be magic. It's because of the incarnation of Jesus Christ, the word becoming flesh. It's because of what the word did and accomplished, 
right? Which is the Paschal mystery, his life, death, resurrection, and ascension. The fact that Jesus sits at the right hand of the Father, the sacramental life of the church communicates the life of Christ to us, the grace of Christ to us. This is why baptism matters. Now you're a new creation. Okay, what's another motif that we look at? Well, 1 Peter chapter 3 refers to baptism. Uh, here's another word for tupos. He says, which prefigured that the flood of Noah was prefigured or was a prefigurement or a pattern for baptism. It says baptism, my, my translation in the RSV says, baptism corresponds to this, right? Baptism corresponds to this, which saves you now. So if we look at Peter's theology of baptism in 1 Peter chapter 3, that Peter's theology of baptism is essentially, it is like the floodwaters were for the bad people at Noah's time and for Noah and his family. What was the flood for the bad people? It was their destruction. Okay, so just like in Paul, in Romans chapter 6, baptism is first a move to death. Don't you know that you were baptized into Christ, you were baptized into his death? Then it becomes a movement to life. So now the old man, Adam, is dead. You are dead to Adam because when Christ died on the cross, he died to Adam, okay? And this means if you're baptized, you are now in Christ. When he died, you died to the old way. And now you are a new creation. So St. Peter, drawing on the Noah parallel, splits it in half. Where's the death? The death is the flood for the evildoer, the sinner, those who walked not with God, those who were not righteous in the eyes of God, those whose God's grace and favor were not upon, which describes all the things for Noah. Noah didn't walk alone with God in his generation. Noah was righteous before God. Noah found favor before the Lord and had grace from the Lord. These things are caught up in that theology of Peter through typology. He says baptism corresponds to the flood of Noah, who was saved. Well, the only people that were saved, right, the new life, was Noah and his wife, his three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and their wives. So it says that eight in all were saved through waters, through the waters. So again, Genesis 1, the Holy Spirit hovers over the waters. And now with the flood of the unleashing of these deep waters that were there from creation, you have Noah and his family being saved through the waters. And then Peter gives us a better, more theological, not just a typological, but now theological, not just a narrative, but now more uh, didactic, now more just straight instruction. He says that baptism is not the removal of dirt. It's not just this outward sign. The hidden side of it is it is an appeal to God for a clean conscience through the death and resurrection of Jesus who sits at the right hand of the Father. What he did was he took the death of Jesus, he took the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus, and he rolled it all up into baptism. And he said, look at Noah. You know the story of Noah and the flood? The flood is what baptism is. It kills the evil and gives new life to the good. It is salvation. It saved Noah. So too, if you belong in the church, which is the new ark of God, it will save you. Right? This is powerful. The motifs of death and new life, the motifs of old creation, new creation are found throughout the Bible. And you can even say that Noah is a new creation story, right? God hit the Nintendo reset button on creation with Noah, brought back the Tehom, the waters of the deep, and flooded everything and all that stuff. But then what does God do at the other end of it? He sets his rainbow in the sky as a sign of the covenant that he will never again destroy all of creation with a flood. What does that mean for us? It's the promise of life, of security in God if we are in 
the covenant. Again, we see these beautiful things in baptism all of the time. This is awesome. So then another area where you could look at baptism is the Red Sea. When was Israel saved from the power of Pharaoh? Well, you could say in a real way they were saved. The first moment of their salvation is when Yahweh from the burning bush called forth Moses to be his the deliverer, right? To, to make Moses his voice among the people, right? So he gave Moses the rod or the rod of Moses. You will stretch forth your rod over the land of Egypt, right? And then he brings Aaron, Moses' older brother, to be his mouthpiece, and Aaron becomes the high priest of Israel. So Moses is the ruler. It's all summed up in Moses. He is the priest king. And then you have Aaron, who is the high priest. They go before Pharaoh. They do the 10 plagues. Judgment falls upon the house of Pharaoh. And then you have the great and terrible last plague, the death of the firstborn. Why the death of the firstborn? Well, all 10 plagues are summary judgments of God, of Yahweh, against the gods of Egypt. The biggest god of Egypt being the Nile, right? But the most tangible god of Egypt being Pharaoh. Pharaoh was seen as an avatar of Amun-Ra, the sun god, and people worshipped Pharaoh, and they also deified his son, right? So this is the collapse, and this is also justice for Pharaoh, the previous Pharaoh, killing all their firstborn sons of, of the Hebrews. So judgment comes. This is a just judgment upon the land of Egypt. They sat by while Hebrew women had their babies killed. Okay, so now God is bringing judgment upon Egypt. but. So they, how, how are they saved? Well, they take an unblemished male lamb in the prime of its life. They sacrifice the lamb. They take its blood and paint it with a hyssop branch on the doorpost and lintel. They roast the lamb whole, and they eat the lamb as a family, and they eat the lamb with unleavened bread. They eat the flesh of the lamb with unleavened bread and with bitter herbs to remind them of the bitterness of slavery. These are the things, and they drink these cups of wine, and then it became the Seder meal or the Passover meal that Jews still celebrate to this day. And this is a memorial meal that the lamb that was offered wasn't a sin offering. This is a whole nother dimension. Again, remember the prism with all the different rays. There's the sin offering and the guilt offering. Those are things that when we are aware of crimes that we have committed and sins we have committed, we offer an atonement. But the, the Passover lamb is not, is not a sin offering. Yet all four gospels present Jesus as our Passover lamb. That doesn't mean that he's not also the sin offering. St. Paul says, that he, uh, he who knew no sin was made sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. That phrase, to be made sin, can very easily be translated to be made a sin offering. That God didn't make Jesus transform him into sin. That doesn't even make sense. But he became a sin offering. In fact, in the Greek, whenever it talks about the sin offering in the Old Testament, it just calls it for sin, not for a sin offering. It's pretty interesting. There's a lot of scholarly debate on that. But uh, most translations will now say, uh, he who knew no sin became a sin offering right? So that we might become the righteousness of God. So you look at how Jesus is the Passover lamb. Behold the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, right? That St. Paul says, Christ, our Passover lamb has been sacrificed for us. Therefore, let us keep the feast, not with the insincere, not with the leaven of insincerity, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Wow. St. Paul is saying, let us keep the feast of the new Christian Passover with unleavened bread. Now you can see all that Eucharistic typology there. But we're talking about baptism. So where do we get the baptism part? Well, brothers and sisters, when was Israel, like I said, saved from the hand of Pharaoh? Was it at the 10th plague, at the death of, of the Egyptian firstborn? Was it when the, at the incarnation moment of the fiery bush? 
Was it when uh, the they painted their doorposts and lintel with the blood of the lamb? Was it when they ate the flesh of the lamb with the unleavened bread? It was all of those things. But ultimately, it was when God, and I think it's Exodus 14 and 15, divided the Red Sea. And Israel marched through on dry land, through the Red Sea, crossed over pharaohs with its chariots and charioteers, flew headlong into the Red Sea, and what happened to them in the Red Sea, right? Moses stretched forth his hand and his rod over the Red Sea. The waters came together, and they were all tossed horse and chariot into the sea. It isn't until they pass through the waters that the death of the reign of Pharaoh, the darkness and sin that Pharaoh represented, was overthrown. His claims over Israel was not definitively destroyed at the moment of the sacrifice of the Passover lamb, but at the moment of the crossing of the Red Sea with the destruction. So now you have what? You have new life. Israel is now freed from bondage to Egypt. You also have death. The old way, the old slavery, the old bondage is now destroyed in the waters. Just like the Noah archetype or the Noah type, you now have the Red Sea type. They are free from Pharaoh only when they pass through the midst of the waters. The church fathers used to talk about the Red Sea all the time when it talked about baptism because the Red Sea was for them something like the deliverance from Satan. That Pharaoh was Satan, that bondage to Pharaoh was bondage to the devil, and you and I, thousands of years after the Exodus event, are enslaved to sin, death, and darkness, and Satan. And how are we delivered? Well, yes, we are delivered by the incarnation of Jesus Christ. Yes, we are delivered by his paschal mystery, his life, his death, his resurrection, his ascension. But when that applies to me is when my head goes underneath the waters. Right When I pass through the midst of the waters and the demons and the darkness and the oppression and the sin is definitively destroyed in my life, and I now have a new lease on life. I now have a new life, the newness of creation, right? You see these motifs building and building and building, and I could keep going. You know, there's a great story where they come upon brackish waters in the desert. They need to drink waters, and they find out that they can't drink it because it's brackish, right? So what does God say? But then the people all murmur, oh, you're going to kill us here in the desert. So what does God command Moses to do? Take a tree and throw it into the waters, and then the waters will become sweet. Take a tree? Sometimes I feel like in the Old Testament, it's, it's hard to even remotely understand it unless you see its fulfillment in Christ Jesus. So what does Moses do? He takes the tree, prays, throws it into the waters, and the waters become sweet. What is baptism, right? The waters of the flood, that's death. The waters of the Red Sea, that's death. That's judgment. Yeah, it is. It's the brackish waters that don't lead to life but lead to death. Moses throws the wood of the cross into the waters, or rather, priests throw the wood of the cross into the waters, which is symbolized by taking the Easter candle and at the Easter vigil plunging it three times into the waters. It's symbolized every time we call down blessing and exorcism prayers over the baptismal waters. And then we plunge ourselves into the waters and it gives us new life. It gives us refreshment to our souls. It nourishes us, right? And so you see these images. There's so many more. You, you could also say, wait, well, when was Israel definitively saved from Egypt? Well, maybe not just when God appeared and began to reveal his plan of deliverance, maybe not just at the Passover sacrifice, maybe not just at their fleeing Egypt and despoiling them, maybe not just after they crossed over through the Red Sea and that now became a new people. 
maybe their definitive salvation was when they passed through the waters of the Jordan River under Joshua. They crossed a miraculous crossing of the Jordan River and went into the Holy Land, right? They don't take possession of heaven, which is what the Holy Land symbolizes, the promised land, until they pass through the waters. This is what the sacramental life is meant to communicate to us. But we who do not have eyes to see and ears to hear don't have a a Eucharistic and a baptismal or sacramental vision of the incarnation of Jesus and how it applies to us, right? So this is what we need to do. We need to recapture the fact that Jesus is God. And as Yahweh, he's fully revealing, he's preparing Israel, but then through that very preparation, he is revealing himself to us in the new covenant, that he's disclosing these things. He's taking hidden things and making them plain. In the end of Luke's gospel, on the road to Emmaus, he appears to two disciples who are going away from Jerusalem, which is the exact opposite direction they should be. And it's on Easter Sunday morning, right? Or, or maybe afternoon by this point. And he appears to them, but their eyes are kept from recognizing him. And he says, what's going on? They're like, are you the only man in all of Jerusalem who doesn't know? And he's like, what things? And then they said, this guy that we thought was the Messiah, he was betrayed by our very leaders and killed. But even some of the, our women have told us this crazy story that they saw him risen. And so they're dejected, demoralized. And he says, you fools. So slow to believe. And then he reveals to them in the law and the prophets, meaning in the Old Testament, all that spoke of the Messiah, all that spoke of himself. So Jesus engaged in typological biblical study, right? He reveals through the Torah, the law, the first five books of Moses and the prophets, which is basically a phrase that means the whole Old Testament. The law, the prophets and the writings is, is the, full, the full expression, but the law and the prophets usually means the whole Old Testament. You refer to a part to refer to the whole. It's kind of a weird thing, but that was very much a Hebrew thing to do. And so you have Jesus opening to them the scriptures to speak of himself. This is why we can have a typological reading of the Bible. The way Dr. Han used to say it was, men write words the way God writes history. We use words to signify events. Oh, let me tell you about the Battle of Gettysburg, right? God uses events to signify still other and greater events. So the Exodus is fulfilled in Christ on the cross, right? In fact, when Moses and Elijah, the law and the prophets, appear to Jesus at the Mount, on Mount Tabor at the transfiguration, they were speaking to him of his departure. The Greek word for departure is exodon, meaning they were talking to Jesus about his exodus. So this is the Christian new exodus with the Passover being the new Passover. And it becomes the central thing around which the Holy Mass becomes the central thing around which the Christian life revolves. And baptism gives us entrance into this new life. What was once circumcision that got you into the covenant and only belonged to men, now baptism, which goes to men and to women, gives you full dignity and enters, brings you fully into the covenantal life of the church. I just want to end on this note. If you now see, begin to catch the vision of baptism in the life of the church and its signification, right? Fighting over women priests is silly, right? Because the priesthood is meant to be a ministerial service within the church. It is not meant to be games of power. Obviously, the Pope runs the church, so and bishops run the church, so there is like this element of power and authority and all this stuff. But ultimately, it's I think because we are downgrading our baptisms. We deny or just don't even think about the power of our Christian baptism and what it means. So we're always wanting more. Well, why can't I become a priest? Well, why can't women become priests? Why can't this happen? And it's like, 
we just need to recognize our baptismal dignity. Hopefully, this little walk through biblical typology is a little bonus episode, you know, 30 minutes-ish to kind of talk about this stuff. But if you start to look at the waters, right, referred to in Genesis chapter 1, in Genesis 6 through 9 with the story of the flood, in the book of Exodus, right, all of this stuff, you begin to see that there's a pattern. And that pattern, like a prism, all these little ways that God, and big ways that God used water in the Old Testament to show us that, that pure visible light, right? That is baptism. Many angles to give us and communicate to us the fullness of the mystery. All right, y'all. This has been Gomer. We're doing a biblical typology walk through the Old Testament. Just a little glance. Just a little, just a little bit, baby. There's a couple books I could recommend. Fulfilled in Christ, The Sacraments by a guy named R-O-Z-A. I'm not familiar with the author at all. It's from Emmaus Publishing. I got it. I'm super excited to go through it. I hear it is a great book, but they do a typological reading throughout the Old Testament. And then there's another book called The Bible and the Liturgy by Jean Cardinal Danielou. It is a phenomenal book, a phenomenal book. I encourage all of you to read it, to understand your own sacramental dignity, to understand how the fathers thought biblically about the sacraments and the liturgy. And also, if you're in RCIA or anything, we need to start drawing on this stuff in order to communicate the mystagogical life to our people. All right, that's it. God bless. God bless.